Okay, guys, if you want to find a seat, we're going to come back together and get started here. As we continue this summer in the book of Exodus, which, of course, is a, it's a story of liberation, right, from bondage in Egypt. But there's this imagery, um, uh, you have Moses afloat on the waters of the Nile in his little ark. You have, later on, we'll have the children of Israel escaping through the waters, waters in the, in the plague story we heard this morning. Later, um, at the end of everything, they will cross the waters of the Jordan into the promised land. And this imagery of Israel always passing through waters on the way to something else became part of the symbolism of baptism. And next week is our baptism service. So I just wanted to say that up front that even baptism is kind of drawing its life from this story. If you've never been baptized um, and would like to be, um, come talk to me after the service. We're going to have a quick little circle up for those who are doing that. If you're at home and, and thinking you want to, um, or if you have to, you know, get out of here quickly, I can meet with this this week and just kind of talk you through what it means to us, what baptism means to us, and sort of how we do things. So if, if that is interesting to you, um, uh, come talk to me after the service. Um, all right, so we left off last week um, with Pharaoh rejecting Moses' request to let my people go. And today we sort of make the turn, as you heard in the long reading we, we had, toward this plague narrative. And, and we're going to do it a little bit differently because it's really long. It's like chapter 5 through 12 or 7 through 12. Um, it would take forever just to cover it. So instead of drilling down deep into these texts, we're going to try to rise up a little bit and talk about the plagues as a whole. Um, like, why are they necessary? How do they function? And Because this seems sort of like an odd way for God to work. And this is one of those um, questions Hebrew people have asked for thousands of years. Like, why did, why did God through, go through this big drama of the plagues um, and, and with Moses and with Pharaoh and all, all of the ins and outs of it. Why, why do that? Why not just soften Pharaoh's heart and let, let them go? You know, it would be a lot less trouble and quite a few people would have been spared their lives. But then, of course, the story that we would tell would be about the greatness of Pharaoh, right? And his mercy on them. Plus, if Pharaoh was that kind of guy in the first place, then none of this story would have been happening the way it was. And in fact, in, in our story, the, the children of Israel weren't exactly clamoring to leave Egypt. It really wasn't part of what they wanted to do. They cried out in their suffering, for sure. They longed for a better situation, but leaving was not on their radar. They had no imagination for that. Leaving was God's idea not theirs, which sort of kind of points us now back toward why the plagues are happening and why the story proceeds the way it does. And we think of Exodus as this liberation from Egypt and slavery and then moving somewhere else. They would have been fine with just emancipation and sticking around. Um, and if, so the story is emancipation for sure, but it's larger than that. It's about God revealing to humanity in a more overarching sense, the chains that bind them, both the children of Israel and Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And in a sense, the Exodus is about God's desire to liberate all humanity from whatever keeps us in chains, whatever keeps us from being free, being human as human is meant to be, including the empires of the world and the Pharaohs of the world. There's always some Pharaoh trying to rule over us. 
but also including our own confused ideas about God and what it means to be human and how to organize the world. And so Exodus isn't just about liberation from bondage. It's this massive story of the people waking up to the idea that there is this God who wants to set us free um, from anything that limits our freedom and about how God is working to liberate all of humanity from whatever enslaves us, which still leaves the question of the 10 plagues. Why not just like say one big plague to set them free? And there are a lot of ways to answer that question. And, and so what I wanna do this morning is I wanna fool around with a bunch of them. They're, they're very creative. They are part of the Hebrew Midrash and they're part of um, just kind of the interpretive history of this, this text. And each of them have like a little interesting take, a little interesting kernel of the truth. And, and so I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna mess around with several of them. You don't have to like any of these, but, um, but they, it might be kind of fun to look at this from different angles. And then we'll kind of hone in on and, and drill down on one big reason. The most obvious reason for these plagues is to say that God is punishing Pharaoh in Egypt. Um, you know, Pharaoh ruled the greatest empire in the world, but it was an empire, which means they do those three things. Remember, they, they turn everything into a commodity that has a value, and then they move that value up the pyramid toward the people at the top, and then they use violence to ensure that or preserve that system. And as we saw last week, Pharaoh wasn't just content to keep the system running. He had to demoralize the Hebrew people because he's afraid of them. Stops giving them straw, keeps their quota of bricks the same. When they falter, he calls them lazy and this institutes more violence. And so with this kind of systemic pattern of injustice, um, on top of the already horrific story of the Hebrew children that they are um, Hebrew male babies, they're throwing into the Nile. It's just infanticized, genocide, it's crazy. Um, on top of this, it kind of makes sense to see this as God punishing Pharaoh. In fact, the scripture even cites this as a, a reason on the front end, Exodus 4.23, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, let my son go that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. So, so that's how they explain the final plague. Um, it's punishment for the slaughter of Hebrew children. And so there is this aspect that God is punishing Israel. But over the years, the Hebrew people had other takes on, on the 10 plagues. Another explanation that I, th I think is interesting is the idea that God was waging war, conquering Pharaoh and Egypt in battle. You know, Egypt was rarely invaded. They had this crazy good military, but they waged war in other lands. Egypt itself was thought to be impenetrable. By the way, that's another thing empires do. They push all the violence to the edge of the realm and then call the center peace. Empires are always at war, just, uh, just out there on the edges. In the middle, they can say, look how virtuous and peaceful and exceptional we are, right? But, but here, Egypt's being attacked at home in their own la land. So the, the plagues can be seen as God, uh, God's way of saying to them, no empire is safe. If you're mistreating people, if you're dehumanizing, demoralizing them. No empire is safe. God can move against them. And um, this, this way reads the whole story as like a military event. God moving against uh, Egypt. We heard this in the reading before with this, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, right? 
an army laying siege to Egypt. This is a list of the 10 plagues here. Uh, again, you can read through. I would love it if you would read through those, those chapters too, just to get some of the details of it. But it's turning the, the water of the Nile to blood, the plague of frogs, the plague of lice, of flies, their livestock dies, they all get boils, which, ooh, and then they, there's hail and locusts, and there's this plague of darkness comes over the land for three days, and then, of course, the final plague of the death of the firstborn child. And we can read this like a siege of Egypt. So if you were going to lay siege to a city, the first thing you would try to do is try and cut off their water supply, which is where they start. They have nothing to drink. They're all digging by the Nile to try to find, to get the water filtered through the, the sand. And then the next thing you would do is fire artillery. That's the frogs. That's what the Midrash says. It's the frogs or artillery. And then came the archers. This is the lice. They said that lice were like arrows because they, because they could pierce the body. They were biting people. Um, then the legions attack, like the foot soldiers, the, the, you know, the, the fodder, cannon fodder guys, they come in, who are like flies or insects, like that plague, because there's so many. And then the cavalry, that's the, the livestock stuff. And then if they could take maybe one part of the ramparts, they would pour boiling oil down on people. That's the plague of boils. And they would um, rain stones. This is um, like slingers, like David with his sling. Rain stones. That's the hailstone, the plague of hail. And then the foreign allies, foreign armies would come in and join them, like a swarm of locusts. They would just swarm the, the city. And if they were captured, of course, they'd be thrown in prison in a dungeon somewhere. This is the plague of darkness. And then the final plague, God reached into the heart of Pharaoh's palace to strike down his his firstborn son, the heir to the kingdom. Remember, par-o means um, big house or, or great house, the palace, right? The, it's not so great now. It's been invaded by the hand of God. So that's another way of interpreting this whole um, plague narrative. And I'm just giving you just the surface of it. There are really involved interpretations around this. It's really fascinating. It's this military campaign, God against Egypt, bringing all of the violence that they foist on the rest of the world on the edge of the realm, bringing it back home to them and proving that they are actually vulnerable, exposing their vulnerability of Egypt and, and really of all empires. That's another explanation. There's another one that says that the plagues are kind of a systematic undoing of the creation narrative. You know, we've, we've been studying this. Um, the story of Genesis is all over this. And so um, it's almost like God is uncreating Egypt. Um, Exodus is constantly referring back to Genesis. If you list all the terms in the, in the creation narrative and concepts, most of them appear in Exodus. Some of them, a, a whole bunch. Um, and, and so the plays can be read as this uncreation, this walking back of creation for Egypt. Like e almost like each plague is a little Noah flood story where some part of the created order just goes berserk on them. It's almost like God reversing the story of creation for Egypt. So Genesis begins, if you remember, with the waters of the deep, the chaos. And here the, the, the first plague is that the Nile, the source of their whole strength, is, is put into chaos. It's, um, it's um, returning to the like, primordial chaos state. Um, and instead of teeming with life like it is in the Genesis narrative, all the fish are dying there. And then in Genesis, you know, all the creepy crawly things that crawl upon the earth, um, uh, frogs, uh, bugs, lice, flies, all that stuff, they're now disordered. They're out of order. They're out of control. All the animals are dying with the livestock. 
You got humanity not flourishing, but covered in boils. And then the plagues sort of end, come to their climax with um, the primordial darkness. It's sort of a reversal of let there be light. And then the barrenness returns. So there's chaos with the water and now barrenness at the end with the loss of the firstborn son. So it's kind of this, remember the word tohu vabohu, the, the chaotic waters and the barrenness. It's as if God's saying, you don't deserve creation because you're so horribly mistreating creatures and the earth. And you've made Pharaoh into a god. And kind of the final blow, or it, this isn't part of the, the place, but the final blow is that the waters that were divided in Genesis to make dry land are what come crashing down and destroy Pharaoh's army. So, so here, th this is another reading of the plagues. It's, it's this battle narrative of God, um, or, or this creation narrative, sorry, of God undoing creation because it doesn't reflect God's intention. And, and what will happen, as, as we'll see later on through the wilderness, is that they're going to come out on the other side, walking through waters again, like in Genesis, into this new creation story, the story of Israel. We'll get, we'll get to that later. Um, the prophets actually cited this several times as what was going on. In fact, the prophets um, would say God is threatening them with the same fate as Egypt. This is um, in Zephaniah 1, in Ezekiel 38, God threatens to uncreate them, uncreate Israel like he did with Egypt. Um, Jeremiah 4 actually uses the word God threatening to return them to tohu vabohu, to the chaos of the deep. And, and so this, this reading suggests that um, if you abuse creation, God will use creation against you. Or creation, the way God has made it, even might, might work against you if you abuse it. I kind of like this one because it, it sort of accentuates the, the um, holistic idea of all the earth being organized. But also, it, it has this cosmic dimension, right? This cosmic battle between light and dark over how to order the creation, and you have these powers of chaos and barrenness that threaten to undo it. And if human beings and human systems join with chaos and barrenness, they make themselves, in a sense, enemies of God. And so the, this one is kind of this, it, it's a cosmic um, dimension of the story drawn out. And it's telling us pretty good, pretty good interpretation. Um, some Hebrew uh, scholars and some Christian interpreters have tried to interpret all the plagues as explainable due to like naturally occurring phenomenon. So for instance, they say that um, the Nile is fed by the mountains and in the, in the mountains of Ethiopia, if there's like a crazy wet river, there will be too much runoff. And Ethiopia has this red soil, um, good for growing coffee, but it's, it's easy to, to come, come down into the Nile. It will actually, if they have a big flood, it will turn the Nile River red and that red muddy water soaks up too much heat becomes too hot and kills off the fish all that mud will clog the flow and it makes a bunch of these swamps especially out in the delta the delta becomes one giant swamp where you breed millions of frogs and gnats who will get diseases one of which is anthrax in the ancient world they and then these frogs will be start fleeing the, the heat of the Nile and go up among the homes. And then you've got um, you, where they will die, by the way, if there's 
a plague of them and start to breed lice on their bodies. This is really lovely, right? Or, or they'll, they'll begin to pass the anthrax. It can, it can affect humans and animals. It'll kill the livestock or cause the people. One of the symptoms is boils on the skin. And um, hailstorms are not that uncommon in certain times of the year. Um, there and locusts were a common pestilence and, and, and could be seen as a plague. And then the plague of darkness, they say is, is like a Syrian sandstorm that lasted three days. And then finally, this is the one that, I, I mean, I was skeptical up to here, and then they pulled this one on, and I was like, I don't know if I'm buying what you're selling. But this is, this with the, with the last, uh, the firstborn thing, they say that actually firstborn children were very coddled and protected in Egypt. Um, and, and they would have had way too rich of a diet and never been around people to have a robust immune system. And so they actually were the first ones to die in any kind of a epidemic. Um, I don't love these, this take. It's really fascinating to read about. There's a lot of work. I mean, there are other ways to do this within that same kind of natural phenomenon, I think. Um, I, I, don't, I don't love this because I, I really think we need to keep the power of God in this because I do think that's a big piece of what the narrative is about. But just something to think about. I, I realize that these kind of natural explanations do allow some people to still believe this story and still tell this story. And so I understand why, there's, why there is value. I mean, there's a book of mine um, that I love. Uh, I, uh, it's not Asher Lev, but it's one of those Haim Potok movies, The Promise of the Chosen. He talks about this. Like, do you know what an amazing thing it is to be able to hand these kinds of interpretations to people who have stopped believing, and they can all of a sudden believe again? And you never know that's where you can take them. This is part of why they don't give up on interpretations. Just because you don't like them, you got to carry them along in your like walking wall, right? And so this is this is one of those. I don't love it, but I get why it's important. And um, so those are just a few of the explanations. They're all interesting, but the one that I, I want to really drill down deep on is, is this one. It really comes from the question we hit last week from Pharaoh: Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? I do not know this Lord. And, and you heard this in the beginning of um, the passage that Faith read earlier. The people don't know Yahweh. Moses doesn't. The people of God don't. I mean, they're still trying to figure this God out. They don't even know what to call it. Call this God, it says. And so there's this lack of knowing. Yada, remember this? It's hanging over the story. Moses doesn't even know God's name. He doesn't even want to go. He doesn't know anything about this God or if this God's powerful. And this lack of knowing, it's it's there with the, with the Pharaoh, the Egyptians, the children of Israel, even Moses. And it sort of opens up this story to insight from this one rabbi, Maimonides, um, Rambam is what he's sometimes called. And he said, one of, the, one of the things you have to remember is the story teaches that it's not enough just to leave Egypt in order to be free. This is a huge idea. It's not enough just to leave Egypt in order to be free. I mean, if that was God's only deal, set him free from bondage, why all the intervening stuff? Why all these conversations with, with Moses? Why 10 plagues instead of just like one big miracle? Why does he even need Moses? Why all this back and forth with Pharaoh going, I'll let him go. And then the stuff about God hardened his heart or he hardened his heart and then he doesn't let them go. By the way, on the hardening of the heart thing, we have, I've been waiting for a time to slide this in. I'm just gonna do it right here. Um, this phrase has always really bothered me. 
that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's the English translation of it a lot. And I, I studied it quite a bit because I wanted to know what I think. That the Hebrew word is hazak. And it, it actually, it means hardened. English hardened, is a, it's a tough translation, actually. It, um, hazak means to strengthen or tighten. It was often used around the ropes on sailboats to harden a knot was to make a loose knot tighter and make it stronger. And so the, the image is not, um, it, it's kind of like on a boat, if, it, if a knot is hardened, tightened, water would sort of squeeze out of it, out of it and sort of reveal what was already there. And so sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Usually it says God has hardened his heart. But when it does, it's not saying God is causing him to be an evil person or playing him like a puppet. It's more like Pharaoh wasn't really thinking about what he was doing at all. He was just reacting, just going on his Pharaoh gut instincts, right? His, it's just unconscious for him. And so to harden his heart is to sort of expose Pharaoh's true motivations, and to sort of strengthen them, to reveal what's already there and just kind of tighten the knot so everybody can see, oh, this is actually what's going on. It's revealing what's already there and revealing it to God and to Moses and even maybe especially to Pharaoh. And what's revealed um, is that Pharaoh has sort of self-deified in the story. Pharaoh was, was pretty much like a god. And so he, he had no idea, he even says it, who God is, who's the Lord that I should obey him. Like, I don't know this Lord. And so the big problem here in the narrative isn't just the slavery. I mean, it is the slavery, but it's not just the slavery. It's that knowledge of Pharaoh overshadows knowledge of God in that land for everybody, top to bottom, in part because Pharaoh's so obviously powerful. And it wasn't evident yet that God was powerful. Yahweh was powerful at all. And the reason for that is because nobody knows this God. Nobody lives in the power of Yahweh. And so they could be released to, from slavery tomorrow. They still wouldn't be free because they don't know who God is. And so they don't know who they are and they don't know what the right use of the world is. I mean, what's the first thing that happened to them when they're released from Pharaoh into the wilderness? They start begging to go back to Egypt, right? It's not enough just to leave Egypt in order to be free. They, they've got to figure out how to stop trusting in Pharaoh's power. And kind of the crazy twist of the Exodus story is this, this isn't really a political problem. This, this is a theological problem. It's a problem of worship. And so Pharaoh really symbolizes this confusion about humanity's confusion about God. That anytime humans become disconnected from God, they'll end up worshiping some other gods, even kind of making a God out of themselves. They'll forget who God is. And they forgot. Because they forgot who God was, they forgot who they were and how to, to organize a world, so they organize it against God's purposes for it. And so slavery is, is a big problem, but the reason for the slavery is nobody knows God anymore. And so they end up just like saying, you know, Pharaoh's He's the power around here. And the Egyptian gods, they must be powerful. When I think of this idea, I always think of one of my favorite writers, David Foster Wallace, has this passage about what worship does to us. And I just want to read I know I've read this before, but sorry, you're going to get it about once a year. I make no apologies. Actually, I did apologize. But he says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism, no such thing as not worshiping 
everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. I love this. Like, people can claim to be atheists, but it's part of the nature of what it means to, to be human. Everybody worships. The question is what? And the case for worshiping something ultimate, God, is that anything else will be, eat you alive. Uh, it will consume you. Like Pharaoh is just consuming the, the, the Hebrew people. Wallace goes on, he says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And then he says this, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. I think, I think this is the purpose of the plagues, at least in, in this reading of it. They're a wake-up call to the world of Pharaoh and the children of Israel, telling them they're worshiping something that's eating them alive. The plagues are God coming to humanity saying, You're, if, when, when you make non-ultimate things ultimate, they will consume you and disorder the world. And, and this, is, this is common to all of humanity. Everybody worships small g gods that lead us then to be confused about who God is, who we are, and how to use the world. And, and part of what we can learn from the plague narrative is that life as a human being in the world is a never-ending process of learning to expose the gods we worship and to expose them as powerless and actually as doing great damage. And this, this is tough because they change all the time. They're mostly unconscious, but they're just kind of the default settings largely of culture that we just go along with, and we never question them. The plagues are kind of waking them up to this. I want to show you a quick video. Um, this is my new favorite commercial. I usually don't watch commercials, but I was watching um, sports, and so I saw this commercial. I want to I see this. Let's watch this, and we'll talk about it afterwards. Okay, you can kill it. How great is that, man? I, we just watched that over and over and over. I'm like, found it on YouTube. I'm just texting it to everybody I know. Watch this, watch this. Or not, probably not. I love that one. 
it won't impact your future whatsoever. Like, I mean, I, it, we all get the joke. I mean, it's, it's kids' sports, and that is a rival god. It is the chief, chief rival for worship on Sunday morning that exists in our society. It just is. I love it. That guy sitting by the lady just shouting the truth. He's like... <laughs> Just exposing the false narrative that she's founding. It's just unconscious for her. It's what everybody else is saying. That's the role of the plague narrative. It's prophetic in the Exodus story. And, and it's undermining the dominant narrative that everybody's just repeating and, and it's not, they're not even thinking about it. It's just unconsciously. But they, at the end of it, they show that Yahweh is the true power, not Pharaoh and not the gods. And so if we read the the plague narrative this way, what we see is God was undermining their entire religious system. I think that, for me, this is the most important reading. The, the Egyptian pantheon had like 70, 80 gods, each little god ruling some small portion of life. Each um, plague targets then that god's rule and subverts it and exposes it um, as weak. In fact, just before the, just before the final plague, um, God gives this as the reason. Um, Exodus 12, 12, it says, I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. That's, that comes right at the end of the plague narrative, right before the Passover stuff. So real quickly, I want to walk through these and show you them. Um, the, the first one, the plague of blood, was directed at Happy, the water god. Also maybe Osiris, um, whose bloodstream was the Nile, right? These, these gods have failed hard. Um, the plague of frogs was directed at Hecate, the god of fertility. Um, um, the frog was a symbol of fertility for them, like rabbits would be for us. Um, Hecate was, was represented with the head of a frog. You can see that the, the god here has the head of a frog. Um, the plague of lice. It says in the scripture, the lice came from the dust of the earth. The dust turned into lice, and, and the god Geb was supposed to steward the dust of the earth. Again, can't do it. The plague of flies um, targeted um, Capri, the god of creation, that also, by the way, has the head of a fly. Creation is going haywire, right, with all these flies. The death of um, livestock was aimed at the god Hathor, the, the god of love and protection, who had the head of a cow. This god has a cow for a head. The plague of boils was directed at Isis, the god of medicine and healing of the human body, who could do nothing about these boils. The plague of hail targeted Nut, the Egyptian sky goddess. The, the plague of locusts took aim at Seth, the god of storms and disorders, because the, the bugs came like a, like a storm and, and covered, covered the sky, ruined their crops. The plague of darkness was targeted at their main god, Ra, the sun god, the source of life. And then the firstborn, the, play, the death of the firstborn is aimed at Pharaoh, kind of the ultimate power and symbol of Egypt itself, who couldn't even save his own son. How fascinating is that? There's some other ways to do this, too. Um, but just, you, you can just imagine the, the people, when something went wrong, they thought, who's the God who's in charge of this? They start praying to that God and nothing happens. Like, this is, this is the plagues. God undermining each Egyptian God, keeping the, because those things keep them from knowing the one true God and ever experiencing God's power. And so what happened is, they're following some non-ultimate thing, and then pretty soon it's systemic injustice and economic oppression and slavery and genocide. And so Yahweh begins to confront and undermining these gods, exposing them as just impotent, powerless. 
And I think what I want, want us to take away, what I want to suggest is that we, we all have this same exact problem. We don't have a pharaoh, maybe, but there's something that's pharaohing over us. We have plenty of, like, small G gods always. Money, you know, position, beauty, power, intellect, recognition, winning, youth, status, relevance, likes, shares, whatever. And what makes these things so powerful is that we don't even realize that they function like gods in our lives. And, and we can't really see the hold that they have on our imagination until somebody sitting beside us going, doesn't really matter at all, right? And, and their only real power that they have is that they can, it's, it's a power we give to them. And the power is that they can create in us a sense that we're never enough that we'll never have enough, we'll never be enough. And this is, you know, the unofficial American religion is dissatisfaction. And, and it fuels this unconscious, mostly, drive for more and more and more and more, driving us to one more product, one more achievement, one more experience that will never live up. And so the story just sort of warns us like, go, go on ahead with your small g-gods and all that stuff, but eventually the plague will come and we'll dethrone all of our gods and then we'll be offered a chance um, to soften our heart or harden our heart. And, and it will reveal to us these gods are not real. They have no power uh, other than what we, we give them. And, and here's, the, here's the leap. And totally sorry to do this to you, but I think it's true. Mostly what we'll do when this happens is try another God. Because we live in America and there are plenty and we're rich. But eventually, if we're lucky, we'll crash and burn. And nothing we reach for will be enough. And we'll finally come to realize what the children of Israel realized after bitter tears, 40 years in the wilderness. And it may take that long. We'll come to realize it's not enough just to leave Egypt in order to become free. It's not enough, you could say, just to call yourself a Christian in order to be free. There are rival gods in the picture. And we all have them, and they're mostly unconscious. And it's only when we begin to experience the presence of God over and over as a as a constant in our life that we can ever start to become free slowly. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Only when we begin to organize, prioritize in our life these rhythms and habits that put us in touch with God and teach us who God is and who we are. I mean, Sabbath keeping and tithing, weekly worship and daily prayer, community, group kind of stuff, friendship, and then also solitude and silence. All of this paired with the outcast. Do that for, I don't know, I say spiritual decades, or spiritual growth is measured in decades. Do that for 10 years. You won't wonder if God is real. You'll know it for sure. And you will be free. There's a kind of freedom that comes with it. Not free as in like you can do whatever you want, but free as in when it's time to worship, you know how to do it. 
free as in you can spot the gods when you're worshiping them and you can come to a stop because you know the, the real thing. Free, in, in fact, freedom really in, in the Christian faith, it, it comes from the, the, these stories. Freedom is to be able to finally function like a human being, like it was meant to be. And then to be part of the reorganizing the world in such a way that we image God. This is what Christ called the kingdom of God. And we can actually be free to be human as God intended it to be. These plagues can be read all different ways. Um, but what they, I think, overall really tell us is that the Exodus is not just about liberation of the children of Israel thousands of years ago and how powerful this God is. The Exodus is about the continual liberation of all humanity from whatever keeps us in chains. And so the, the question I want to leave you with is, what is it for you? What keeps you in chains? Let's pray. And just for a moment, I wonder if something came to mind. And I said, what, what is it for you? What's the small G, God? Is there something that comes to the fore? It's a bad God, and you know it, and you just keep worshiping at that altar. It's mostly unconscious. It just functions as a habit, a rhythm. Or maybe you're in the midst of some kind of plague. There's some kind of some part of the well-ordered creation around you or that you're involved with that's going berserk right now. It's just causing a lot of pain, and you're like, this is not an ordered life. This is a disordered life. I, I wonder if your reaction to it might expose um, a God, a small g God. If nothing else, just exposing how individually, you know, kind of siloed off we are from one another, where it's hard to share our pain with the church and with one another. God, we give you thanks for the story um, of the plagues, which is a weird thing to thank you for, but um, thank you that you don't just strand us here in the world, but that you're constantly working using whatever means at your disposal to wake us up to our lives and to your presence in the world, your power to put the world to rights. I pray that our participation in that story would be the story of our lives. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We invite you to stand, please, and um, we're going to receive communion the way we're doing it right now is We'll invite you to come forward and you'll be offered um, this nice, neat little shrink-wrapped um, communion stuff, which is awful, but this is what we're doing right now to be safe. Um, and they'll say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. Feed back to them, I will remember. Uh, before we do this, let's uh, pray a blessing. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a uh, means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive you into our bodies, um, 
May we receive Christ into our lives once again. May we receive you as our God once again. Come to us and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore.